Although I'm a doctor by profession, I'm not your doctor. All content and information on this podcast and on our website is for informational and educational purposes and does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of patient-client relationship by use of our site. Although we strive to present accurate information, the podcast and website are not a substitute for your healthcare provider. Always consult a healthcare professional who knows your particular needs and circumstances before making any health-related decisions. Also, there are curse words that are unedited and graphic descriptions of bodies, bodily fluids, and other real-life scenarios that might make some listeners uncomfortable. I'm Dr. Suzanne Ciotti. And I'm Becca Hammer. Welcome to the Perimena Podcast. All right, topic of the day, breast health. Yeah, that's right. In today's episode, we're going to talk about your tits. Well, my tits, your tits, her tits. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, we can't really conjugate that like a, a nice uh, romance language verb, can we? Okay, anyway. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to touch on a couple of topics today. We're going to talk about screening. We're going to talk about genetic testing. But most importantly, one of the reasons that the, why we thought that this episode was specifically important is because... Throughout our conversations, we consistently refer to estrogen replacement therapy and the role that it can play in easing some of the symptoms that you may be experiencing. Well, there's a lot of mixed messaging around estrogen replacement therapy. And so what we wanted to do today was to bring you up to date with the most recent information that we have around this topic so that you can make informed decisions. Right, Suzanne? That's right. Yes, it's an important consideration and has been for years in women who are considering estrogen therapy. So we wanted to make sure that you had the most accurate and and up-to-date information. And up until this point, we mention every single time there might be an increased risk of breast cancer for women who take estrogen replacement therapy with estrogen specifically. And this episode has helped our listeners sort through the changing landscape of recommendations and to help assess where they fall. Because it's confusing even for me as a provider. You just said assess where they fall, right? Like, so is that like a double entendre, right? Where they're right. falling? Okay, yeah. I see where you are That's with that. Right. I see you. Yeah, after menopause, the, the those those ladies fall. That's for sure. And we're going <laughs> to talk about that go. in the skin episode coming up. <laughs> Knee high, ankle high, waist high, I'm not sure. So breast cancer... <laughs> Breast you say something funny and then funny. you go right into breast cancer. It's I know, like, I know. Damn, that was not funny. <laughs> so, yes. But in all breast seriousness. Cancer, yes, in all seriousness. Breast cancer is the number one cancer death for women. And one in eight women will have breast cancer in their lifetime. Wow. More, yeah. People just More turned likely, off. They were like, mm, I don't want to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I bet. Yeah, every, I think everyone listening has known someone who's been through this, and, and they probably are remembering them right now. Yep. And I, yeah, and I, I've been practicing a long time, 30 years. So I remember the whole history of estrogen therapy. In fact, I w- was in my first few years of practice when preliminary results of the Women's Health Initiative were released, and it was recommended to physicians that they stop prescribing estrogen replacement therapy 
due to the increased incidence of stroke in those women who are taking estrogen and concerns for the increase in breast cancer in women on estrogen replacement therapy. Okay, well, stop right happens. there for a second. And for those who are for those who are unfamiliar with it, for very briefly, talk about for those who don't know what it is. Talk about the Women's Health Initiative. Yes. It was supposed to be a longitudinal study uh, lasting decades in order to see what happened with women and women's health and a lot of different variables uh, uh, on estrogen therapy and off of estrogen therapy with and without progesterone. So we were looking long-term over a lot of variables and we had actually, they, they recruited a bunch of nurses uh, to kind of take place in the study, which was they thought would give them better information. Uh, and they stopped it abruptly at eight years because of this, what they thought was an increased incidence of stroke in those women. So that's what that is. And they, they had a assembly and voted, let's stop this. Let's get, let's make that recommendation that estrogen replacement therapy is bad. And so that shot out like a cannon and all of the providers heard about that. And that's still how a lot of providers practice today up until the last couple of years. Absolutely. I, new, I, new information was released. I totally remember when that happened. Now, a lot of listeners who are listening to this right now because they're in perimenopause, you may be somewhere in your late 40s, early 50s, and maybe you weren't paying attention because that study yeah. was 20 years ago. And right. so, you know, you were in your mid-20s not giving any shits about estrogen replacement therapy. Right. <laughs> I happened to have been in right. healthcare advertising, so it was the it was like top of the mark for me, Suzanne. I know mm -hmm. it was for you too as a practicing physician. So, but it, I right. mean, this was like uh, screeching halt kind of right. medical 180 turn where it like right. estrogen replacement therapy became the worst Thing. You might as they might as well have been injecting mm -hmm. you with poison. I mean, it was just right. It was dramatic. So absolutely. And then before that, like you were saying, I mean, we were singing the praises of estrogen because <laughs> we knew it was so helpful for bone density. We knew it was good for vaginal mucosa and dryness and relief of those hot flashes. We didn't even know all these other benefits that we've been discussing on the podcast. So it was that sudden recommendation that made everybody stop uh, and nobody really considered the benefits of taking the hormone therapy, like the improvement of bones and the help in quality of life and symptom control. So, so, so in so, retrospect, when we look at that, there's some details we can talk about a little bit. Yeah, so fast forward 20 years and talk about some of the issues with the study on why we're rethinking yeah the advice right. that it gave. Okay. Um, so in the study, the mean age was 61. <laughs> 61? Because they, <laughs> they excluded women who were in the throes of menopausal symptoms. Oh my God. Uh, so the women that we're talking about now on our podcast, or we're, we're, you know, women that we're trying to help here on the podcast, that's a lot older. You know, perhaps those women had an increase, increased incidence of stroke because they were older, uh, or, you know, had other sorts of risk factors that came up uh, as they aged. Their, the actual incidence of stroke that they're talking about was 0.02%. <laughs> Wait, so point very zero small two amount percent. 
Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> Two women in 10,000. Uh, and they thought that that was enough. And I think I have to say, I think some of it was a bias, you know, why this is just something for helping with symptoms. Women are tough or you're not even that we're tough, but we don't need that. So, uh, so let's just, it's an extra fluffy thing to be taking estrogen. Let's just, uh, let's not recommend that anymore because we certainly don't want anybody to have a stroke. So I think somebody, there was value judgments maybe made there too. If you could see my body right now, you would know that I am so close to just <laughs> yeah. banging my head on the Yes, yeah. because again, she is. it's this idea that, you know, women can suck it up. It's the suck it up syndrome. Honey, you'll be fine. It's all in your head. It couldn't possibly be that bad. So we're going to take away one of the things that we know helps you. Oh right. God. Yes. Right, right, right. There must have not been much yeah, money it, in estrogen replacement therapy otherwise. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. And then kind of for follow-up, there were some women who stayed in the study of sorts. It's only 7% of women who were initially in the study. So a small cohort. And in about 2021, a new analysis of follow-up from this was released uh, showing the 20 years that have passed. Oh, well, tell me something good. Tell me something good. It actually showed a decrease in breast cancer in women without a uterus who took estrogen. But there was, the caveat, a slight increase in breast cancer for those women who took estrogen and progesterone but it's still less than half a percent, very small. Oh my, okay. Uh, so, and there is- uh, Drive me yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And I know, and when we look at statistics, we always like to consider death rates because we want we want to save lives. Ultimately, we we don't necessarily just want to stomp out disease if it means that they're dying earlier. Uh, so we always look at that end point of making people stay alive. Mm-hmm. And there was no change in death rates for either form of estrogen replacement for all causes. Oh my so God. Or without progesterone. So even if you did get diagnosed with the breast cancer, it was earlier and treatable. Oh my God. Okay. So, <laughs> so again, so what I'm, here's my takeaway is that a estrogen was taken away from women because they thought that there was a minuscule chance of increasing strokes or mm-hmm. more breast cancer. So everybody mm-hmm. stops doing it. Women fall out of the study, but there are a handful of women who stay in the study and come to find mm-hmm. out it showed there was a decrease in breast cancer in women without a uterus who took progesterone and only a tiny increase in breast cancer. But at the end of the day, the death rate didn't change. Right. That's right. <laughs> so this means that estrogen replacement therapy is not as risky as we thought, right? Yes. Because of the high rate of breast cancer in women, it's important to know when you actually need to be screened. And that has many different recommendations as well. That's a, This might make you bang your head even further on the on the table. We are going to talk. Desk. We are going to talk about the shit show that is that whole screening recommendation in a second. But mm-hmm. I want to I want to ask you a question. So I'm a woman who wants estrogen replacement therapy. I'm talking to my provider, and they're pulling out the Women's Health Initiative study for the reason why they're hesitant to give it to me. What am I supposed to say? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you need a little bit of getting up to date is probably one way to look at it. Oh, I think doctors um, probably you know, put up with that really well. Hey, yeah, hey, right. And they they the usually don't studies. like that. But I mean, there is a, you know, we do always hesitate with women who have a family history 
of breast cancer. There's probably other sorts of things that should be done in screening those women for potential risk of estrogen stimulation of a potential cancer or a small cancer. So, so that, you know, but for the general population, that probably isn't something that is so much of a worry anymore. And I'm not sure what you would necessarily say to your physician who's saying that they won't prescribe it because they're worried about about the risk of stimulating breast cancer if you have no risk factors at all, especially. Maybe time to move on to another provider. Oh, oh, love that. Okay, you heard it. If Again, and here's the thing. If you have risk factors, if you have a familial history of the women in your family having breast cancer, yeah, you're not a good candidate. We've talked about that the whole time, right? If you have certain risk mm-hmm. factors, you don't want to go down there. But that if you're not in that subset, this can be an option for you that is safely undertaken. So mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're not getting a, a provider who wants to have a conversation with you, who knows the most recent information, eh, think about somebody else. They right. That's right. Well, with that good news, let's talk about screening recommendations and this shit show that that is. And I, <laughs> right, uh, I know, good. Wow, and why? And it's different, Suzanne. Why For do I each say it's organization? A shit show? <laughs> right, yeah. Each organization has a different recommendation. Uh, For how so often far. you should be screened? For how often you should be screened with a mammogram? Okay. So. For instance, there's the United States Preventative Task Force. This is actually kind of like the the gold standard, I'd say. Okay. It's what insurance companies used when we had when we were getting affordable health care mandates. One of the things we had to have covered with insurance was those recommendations made by the USPTF. So we know that this is a is a reputable organization. They really weigh the benefits of doing the screening versus the cost and the years of lives saved. So they recommend screening every other year starting at 40. And see, and that's that's for me personally, that's how I always understood it, right? Forever mm-hmm. and ever I started at 40 getting mammograms and then I went every other year. Because mm-hmm. I thought that was the it. That was it. But then right. a couple of years ago, when I would go to see my provider, I would be getting different messages. So talk about other right. organizations' recommendations. That's right. <laughs> so the uh, the American Academy of Radiology says start at 40 with an annual exam. So every year exam. So this is usually also the the result that you'll see on your mammogram report, or if your radiologist sends you a card of a, of the results, they'll say recommend annual mammogram. So that's that's usually because that's what their organization recommends. Hold on. So a radiologist thinks you should go see a radiologist every year. And did I hear that right? Right. Yes, that's I'm right. just going to leave and sit there. I, I, you can take away right. whatever you want out of the tone of my voice. Okay, who right. else? So another reputable organization is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and they split the difference. So they say you can do it every one to two years. Ultimately, this is a discussion to have with your doctor based on your risk and family history 
The recommendation, of course, might be different if you have a close relative who died of breast cancer young, or if you have a known genetic mutation, like you might end up really, it would be pertinent to do the annual mammograms, or maybe you'd want to do something different like a MRI um, instead. Well, and I think too, if I have had an abnormal screening in the past, I would definitely want to have it more frequently. I think, Mm -hmm. I think really what... What I'm hearing from you is that there is not one answer. <laughs> right. There's right. There's not one answer necessarily. We like to make screening guidelines for the general population just to help everybody stay on track. Yeah. And that that would that the bottom line would be the mammogram every other year. At so, least. Yeah. Go at least at every least. other year. Okay. Right. And then And then we also talked about, yes, the that starting the discussion, if you haven't already, with your provider, starting at least by age 25, as to what you should be doing for assessing your risk for developing breast cancer, because it might be that you'd want to do other things like genetic testing, or you might want to do uh, mammograms even earlier. Uh, we don't usually recommend doing them before the age of 35 because of, of of a breast tissue that's dense. Suzanne, I think that having the conversation at 25, that ship has sailed for most of the listeners on our podcast. I'm just saying. Right. (laughs) Right. But just in case you have somebody else. Oh, how about your daughter, your niece, your... Your, Yes, your daughter, your niece. Okay, so Suzanne, we talked about screenings being mammography and, and potentially an MRI, but what about the monthly self breast exam. Remember that? Remember the little cards? Mm -hmm. Yes. I do remember handing those out, the waterproof cards you put in your shower. Yes. So what about those monthly breast self exams? You might be asking. Yep. For many years, we'd hand out those diagrams and most organizations recommended that women check their breasts regularly and report any changes to their provider as soon as possible so that additional testing can be done. And in the most part, we do recommend if you do see changes in your breast, you should report them to your physician as soon as you can and make an appointment to see them. Yeah, but I ain't going to so lie. I haven't gotten a card in years. I mean, I have not yes. gotten a little shower hanger card since uh, right. 2000, the, <laughs> before the 2000s. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so why not? the uh, the American Cancer Society recommends against doing regular breast exams <laughs> for the general population because they're worried about unnecessary follow up that women will need to have uh, an ultrasound or an MRI. Uh, or uh, do a biopsy, and that they don't feel like the live years of life saved for that kind of screening is is helpful. But they do recommend that the provider che- checks the breast exam every year during your physical. And all a lot of other organizations do recommend that women still do their breast exams regularly. So it is still a good idea to be familiar with those girls. No, your <laughs> and girls. And make sure you know what's going on. See, that's kind of... Because we'll talk about some, some of those things that you're going to want to go right to the physician for some of the symptoms you, or changes in your breast that you might notice. But that's a little crazy. Okay, so... The American Cancer Society says you don't have to do them yourself because what, too many people are coming in with like false, like, oh, there's something wrong, something wrong, and then you do a bunch of tests. Right. So it's a cost thing? Yes. Or 
Yeah, it is. We do talk about cost for years of life saved when we make a, re- a screening recommendation. That's just, uh, that's like public health uh, kind of 101. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, I mean, it seems if you're an individual, of course, that gets cancer, you think, gosh, I mean, it, I, I mean it, I, it's, we should spend however much we can to avoid uh, cancer early on. But we do need to make these recommendations so that we uh, use the, have the best use of resources overall. And that's the reason why. So, um, I hope that makes some sense. Yeah. Welcome to the United States where medicine is for profit. Okay. That's all I'm saying about that. <laughs> We're moving on. All right. Guess what? If you want to keep che- checking your breasts every month, uh, I'm sure you can get a card online somewhere, but, uh, right. <laughs> the, the cancer society doesn't necessarily recommend it. So that's all I'm right. going to say about that. All right, so we touched, we've said it a couple of times, but um, I want to, I wanted to invest a few minutes talking about genetic testing. Um, you know, for most of us, for probably most of the people listening to this particular podcast, genetic testing was not available in our twenties and thirties. But mm-hmm. fast forward to all things technology, and it's widely available now. So should I go run out and get some genetic testing to? see where I am or, or, or maybe I only should only go get it if I had a family member who had breast cancer. How how should I think about this? Because this is an overwhelming topic in my opinion. Yes, it is. And, and assessing your, your risk for cancer certainly is a big thing. And, and, you know, it requires that you actually go through, uh, finding out about your family tree, because that will help, uh, assess what your risk for certain mutations might be. What do you mean by that? So we're, well, so you want to kind of find out if you had re- what relatives that are blood relatives had different sorts of cancers and make a, a family tree with showing who had breast cancer, who had colon cancer, who had pancreatic cancer, because actually some of the mutations might be like for Lynch syndrome, the mutations you might have multiple types of cancer, like you might have be at risk for breast and kidney or breast and pancreatic uh, or an ovarian. So, so that's, it's, it's tricky. And then we're all, the other ones that are very well known are BRCA1 and 2. Uh, and those have a kind of a more direct uh, association with breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Oh, are those the people, if you have BRCA1 or 2, is that the, those are the people that yeah. like get mastectomies and get their ovaries right. and hysterectomies, get them exactly. done pro- prophylactically, that's it. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, and because it's so complicated and there's so much to consider before you do testing, because like, as you said, that maybe some of the consequences of finding out might be that you, you you learn that you have a 50% chance of developing breast cancer in your lifetime. So then you'd have to decide, well, should I do a mastectomy or not? When should I do that? Um, and so it's a, it is a big thing to, to find out results, uh, that, um, are disappointing because they might be some, there's something you have to live with your whole life. You can't change your genetics. So you'll have to deal with the consequences of finding out the report. And some people would want to know, and some people wouldn't. So 
the and what you know luckily with the advent of genetic testing came genetic counselors those are people who specifically are educated on uh, the inherited types of cancers what mutations might be associated with them and if you would be benefit uh, by increasing screening recommendations uh, for the type of cancers you're at risk uh, for ba uh, based on your family tree and then then you decide together about doing the genetic testing all right well so then, it's nice let me ask you a that bomb question then so you're in your early 50s you're in perimenopause do you go and get genetic testing knowing, you know, I didn't, you, you couldn't get it when you're in your 20s and 30s because it wasn't available. It is now. Has the train already left the station for me as somebody in my 50s getting genetic counseling? Or is that something I should have done, or genetic testing? Or is that something I should have done like a long time ago? Right. I think you still, there's still a lot of things that you can do if you are positive for certain mutations and you might still, uh, you know, especially if you're 50 and you find out that you have a BRCA mutation uh, and you're, you don't need your ovaries anymore. You're not worried about fertility issues and they're not making estrogen. Uh, maybe you'd be a great candidate you know, potentially for removing your ovaries if there is a risk of ovarian cancer, because that's one, that's a type of cancer that we don't have any other screening test for. Oh, yeah. It's not until it gets really big and bad and usually is very fatal. So, so there is an, a, you know, that's one uh, illustration of a, a situation where it's be really helpful to know your genetic mutation. So I don't think the ship ever sails. The, the sooner you have the information, the more you can be proactive uh, and do screening uh, more frequently. Yeah, well, okay, so we haven't been able to talk about it much, but it's time. Talk about AI. Everybody, you know, it's yeah. like you're either in love with it or you're terrified of it because it's so new and you think it's mm -hmm. fasc fascinating or horrifying. Maybe, maybe you think it's a combination of both of those things. But I've been reading recently that um, AI and medicine are now starting to have a, uh, they're starting to dance mm -hmm. together. You want to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that when right. it comes to uh, genetics? Yeah, and I and I think it especially with cancer risk due to your family history that AI will be very very helpful because there's so many other factors. So each woman's pedigree for cancer is very different. Pedigree? Uh, what am I a so, dog? <laughs> Yo, pedigree. So okay, family tree. No, is you can very say pedigree. Different. I'm okay. I'm just, I'm just yanking your chains yeah, yeah. and saying. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so it might be you know, so there that you might have you might have an aunt with breast cancer and a sister with breast cancer and an uncle with uh, colon cancer. So where does that put you in the in the lineup? So we can't make a general recommendation based on that kind of family tree because there's just so many. You can imagine there's an end to the the eighth power, depending on the number of variables you have going on there. And um, so so then there's also other factors that affect your risk for cancer. And those are event environmental factors like cigarette smoking, if you're overweight, we know that that's linked a lot to uh, other forms of cancer. So it'd be really nice if AI could put the two together uh, what your individual environmental risk factors are, your family history, and they can it can come up with a percentage risk of developing a certain cancer in your lifetime for each one. So 
So I think that that's going to be extremely helpful. And um, those, you know, and I think that's going to work for lots of different disease conditions, like heart disease is one that can be inherited as well. Also very, very much depends on your environmental factors and what you're doing for yourself with lifestyle. Um, So I think that's going to be great. That sort of bespoke um, you know, it's all about me and my factors. So I'm not just grouped into female, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I'm female and I'm black and I have this family history right. and I have this, which, you know, again, the medical community, so sorry, the research community so far has not done a great job, especially uh, with women of color, um, identifying mm-hmm. uh, issues that can impact their mortality and their health, you know, a lot of us are just lumped all together. Um, So I think this AI opportunity, I see a really cool thing that could happen. And I see a tremendous amount of opportunity for um, exactly uh, scary. (laughs) Right. You're right. Absolutely. AI is going to be so helpful for making earlier screening recommendations for women who are black, Asian. And then the uh, flip of that is that that women who are maybe uh, Native American uh, uh, might be less at risk earlier on. So it'll be interesting to to have it kind of crunch all the numbers and come up with a personalized recommendation. And for us today, we're talking mostly about breast cancer. And I think this is such a personal decision, genetic testing and understanding what because uh, I can definitely see I can definitely make the case for why I would have it done and then I can mm-hmm. definitely see why it's like nope don't want to know if I got a target on my back you know I don't know mm-hmm. right yeah I, I think it really depends on your personality and and also keeping in mind this is something I have to live with for the rest of my life yeah so it's nothing you can change you know you can change affect your risk factors like you can become a non-smoker if you're a smoker or exercise a little bit more, but, um, but the genetics part will never change. Yeah. Personally, I would, I, I would be in the no camp. I don't want to, I don't want to know when the bullet's hidden, you know, I just, (laughs) okay. Well, so let's talk about, you you had mentioned that there are certainly some things you can do. Some of it is genetic disposition, but um, yeah. Let's talk about taking care of the girls. You know, I mean, yeah. what can I, what can I do as an individual to take care of them? Some things that are really good for breast health. So vitamin E is helpful for breast tissue. Avoiding caffeine, especially if you have dense breasts, because it makes it really hard to feel a new mass. So it's uh, uh, in your breast tissue. So th- those can be helpful. Remember that you could still be a, uh, a candidate for forms of estrogen replacement therapy, even depending on your risk. We definitely use topical vaginal estrogens for women, even if they have had a self-history of, bre- of breast cancer. Uh, so remember that you might be a candidate for some forms. Wait, what? Uh, if you're really... Wait, yeah, wait, so if I right. can't take it orally, I might be able to mm-hmm. take it topically. You might be able to. Be. That will be a discussion with your oncologist as well, okay. depending on the type of breast cancer you had. Uh, and then number one, another big one, stop smoking, because we do know that it's associated with an increased risk of cancer. So those are things you can do off the bat. We kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but if you notice any changes in your breast at any age, you want to report it to your provider. So some of those would be masses that you might feel, nipple discharge, especially bloody nipple discharge. 
uh, skin changes or redness, puckering of the skin. If you notice a lymph node under your armpit that doesn't go away uh, in that axilla area. The axilla is uh, under in, your arm. Under your armpit. <laughs> that's the armpit. <laughs> keep in mind that women typically have an increased breast firmness just prior to their periods. So that's that's normal. Usually goes away after your period. So if you are checking your breast regularly, it's best to do it after your period. Plus, uh, I, also, didn't want, I didn't want to touch mine before my period because they hurt so damn bad. So there was no way I was right. doing any kind of touching. Yeah. Nobody was <laughs> <Right>. touching. <laughs> That's right. Well, and then, we, you know, since this is a podcast specific to menopause, that keep in mind that there are a lot of women who around menopause report increased breast tenderness and swelling from their hormone, those hormonal changes. So that it might be something related to that as well. So we do know hormonal changes definitely cause breast swelling and tenderness, like early pregnancy, uh, for instance. So report those changes to your provider because they might want to check for things. But let me ask you a question, though. I mean, if it comes and goes, if the tenderness and swelling mm-hmm. comes and goes, can I assume it's hormonal? And if it comes and stays, then I report? What, what are we talking about yes. here? Because I run yeah, into the so doctor that's... every time my boobs hurt because I would have been there every other <laughs> <Right>. month. <laughs> Right. If it comes and goes, then more than likely it's benign. It's not a worry. It's something just related to hormonal changes. If you're uncertain, you think you might feel something, then go ahead and have it checked out and have it reported to your provider. But if it does go away completely, then chances are that it is benign and you don't need further workup. Uh, some, there's some other things if you, you know, if it persists or, uh, that the doctor might want to consider, uh, to test for like prolactinoma, hypothyroidism, uh, pregnancy, hopefully, hopefully at this point where women are, that are listening aren't at risk for that, but they might be if you're in your forties. What else? Yeah, so we talked about things you can do and definitely getting your mammogram at least every other year starting at 40. And you might consider genetic testing at any age for your risk assessment. Uh, it's recommended that women can stop doing mammograms at age 75, oh, but boy. you can keep doing it if you want to. Who would want to? What? <gasps> I get to have my breasts <laughs> smashed a bits. Oh my God. I laugh every time I go and get a mammogram because I'm sitting there and I, I say that they never have, the, the technician is never funny. And I'm always like, mm-hmm. you know, if this was a man, they definitely would have figured out a different way. And she's like, <laughs> right. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, you're smashing the shit out of my tit. Okay. Just, if this was a man, they never would have put up with this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. If you had to smash a man's uh, testicles. testicles like that, no way. <laughs> that would never have flown. That's for sure. This is what we yeah. with. Okay. But yeah, I'm definitely stopping uh, by 75. Right. And you can keep doing it if you would like to. And But some of the reasons we do that, the incidence of breast cancer is lower. And if you do develop it, it's less likely to be aggressive after that age. Um, So you're more likely that you would die of another issue, like a heart attack, than breast cancer after the age of 75. So what's the point? Go in and have have a really uncomfortable procedure done so that I can have a heart attack or a stroke instead. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Okay. Yeah, and I know if it sounds it sounds dry and unfeeling for me to say it that way, but I, if you made it to eighty, good job. That's what I that good good for you. You're doing something right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, perfect. 
Right. And I, I just want to mention that mammograms are actually not all the same. So it depends on what kind of mammogram your facility might have. I think most places in urban areas have nice digital mammography, which are overread by a computer, basically. Uh, but some don't have that, especially in more rural areas. So, uh, so th there are some, there are places that are breast cancer centers where they do mammograms, ultrasounds, biopsies, and they're committed to just make diagnosing breast cancer, uh, rather than being a radiology department that also does chest X-rays and mm. checks for broken bones and such. So you're more than likely to get your, uh, kind of your follow-up done pretty quickly. And uh, th those might that might be something that you might look for, um, like a breast cancer imaging center. So uh, you might want to check out those facilities because that's uh, all remember, they do. Because that's all they do. That's I mean, all they do. Yeah, right. And I know, like in our, and we we live in a more rural area, Durango. So it's uh, we have a mammogram. If you need additional views, it might take three weeks to get your additional views. Uh, so that's a lot of time, like nail biting time. Uh, and you might, after the additional views need to schedule for a biopsy. So it takes a little bit of time, uh, in our area to get, uh, everything figured out. Uh, and there are a lot of women who actually have abnormal mammograms that when they do the follow-up imaging, turns out that they're fine. Mm -hmm. So a lot of unnecessary anxiety. What's the MRI? You mentioned that there's an MRI to be done mm -hmm. potentially. When, when would the instance of that happening uh, come into play? Now, if it would, if you have really breast, uh, dense breast tissue, if you had a, a genetic mutation, like a BRCA mutation, then they might recommend that you do that. If the radiologist thinks it's really hard to read your mammogram because of density issues, then they will often recommend doing a, an MRI, sometimes in addition to the mammogram. So every year you're doing an MRI and a mammogram. Um, so that, that's usually when it comes into play. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good to know. And that you mentioned one thing too, is that it's the comparison part, right? Um, mm -hmm. I went into a right. new mammography place and they're like, um, when did you have your last one? I'm like, Oh, I don't know. And I, can we get those records? I'm like, oh, I don't even remember where I got it. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm, uh -huh. I'm that, I'm that uh, kind of conscientious about my health and they were like losing their minds because they didn't have a comparison. They're like we have right. to come in next That's year. Right. Then. We have to have a baseline. We have to have a baseline. I'm like, okay. Right. That's right. And that's it. I de definitely you want to try to get your mammograms the same facility each year if you're living in an area that has multiple options. And if you move, you also want to remember to take your mammogram reports to your next screening location so that they can compare. Because you're right, you're just going to you're going to drive the radiologist crazy. They won't have something to compare to be able to give you a report because that that's extremely important. Yeah, she was very unhappy with me and but, but enough right. about me. But enough about me and my incompetence. <laughs> right. Well, is there anything else then, Suzanne? I think that's a, I think we covered it. I think the the you know that kind of the risk of estrogen and what we should do for screening. And if you're definitely, if you're on estrogen replacement therapy, you want to still be very diligent about doing your screening at least every other year from the age of 40. As ever, I always try to recap what you said. So what I heard you, us talk about was that there has been a lot of new information since the Women Health Initiative study from the early 2000s, including the fact that estrogen replacement therapy is not as bad as it was once thought. 
And it also seems that regarding screening, there are a lot of mixed messages out there about how often you should uh, have a mammogram. But what it comes down to really is a common sense <laughs> and a conversation with your provider. I mean, if you have a familial history of breast cancer, get screened more often. If not, get screened at 40 and then every couple of years, depending on your results. Right? Common sense? Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it also, what I also heard you say, though, is that family history is a significant indicator of how you should think about your risks. Uh, can you get genetic testing to see if you have genetic markers that would make you more prone to cancers? Yeah. Should you? Nah, that's up to you. But if you do decide to go down the genetic testing route, make sure that you employ a genetic counselor to help you understand results and what, if anything, you want to do about it. Finally, keep paying attention to the girls. If you find any changes in your breasts, do not ignore it and hope it'll change or hope it'll go away. Get yourself to a provider and make sure you're all right. Did I leave out anything? I think you did a great job. Very, very good. Gold star for Becca again. Yes. <laughs> well, let's mm -hmm. let's talk about our next episode. The next time, we're going to continue our conversation of symptoms of perimenopause as we discuss incontinence. Oh my God, it's getting sexy now. Okay, so why is it happening and what you might be able to do about it? Join me as you make your way to the bathroom for the next episode of the Perimenopause Podcast. If you would like to visit our website where reference materials and links to other podcasts are held, please visit us at www.theperimenopodcast.com. If you have questions, comments, thoughts for another episode, please feel free to send us an email at theperimenopodcast at gmail.com. Find more episodes wherever you get your favorite podcast. Please do us a favor. If this information has been helpful for you, please like us, write a review, and if you're so inclined, and most importantly, share this podcast with another sister so she can be informed too.